Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome aboard this week's Policy Dispatch. I'm your captain, Sam Morgan. On our radar today is shipping, the fundamental global sector on which trade and travel are built, which is embarking on a long and arduous journey towards decarbonisation. Shipping firms are at the forefront of efforts to launch green vessels, of course, and in the coming years, we'll have to decide what technology they're going to back and how operations will have to be adapted to make the most of the energy transition. There isn't much time to lose, as we move closer and closer towards that mid-century horizon that is so important to climate targets everywhere. To go over shipping's prospects, I'm joined today by Simon Bergolf, who is Senior Director for ESG Public and Regulatory Affairs at Maersk, one of the world's largest shipping companies. Simon is going to give us some insight into how energy transition priorities factor into Maersk's decision-making, what the firm is doing to clean up the sector, and what the future holds for shipping in general. Before we cast off, it's time for the regular policy dispatch quiz question. Today I'm asking you, if global shipping were a country, its annual emissions would be most similar to which other nation? Is it A, Russia, B, Brazil, C, Australia, or D, Germany? Answer at the end of the show as usual. Now, full steam ahead. So, Simon, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. You're actually our 10th guest on the Policy Dispatch. So welcome aboard. So maybe we could um, kick off today with your take on where the shipping industry kind of stands currently as regards the energy transition. It's an emitting sector after all. Um, and our society as a whole has to go uh, carbon neutral and get greenhouse gases under control. Um, is there a reason for optimism in your sector? Perhaps you could give us an idea of what progress is being made and um, perhaps some you know challenges that you see that have to be uh, overcome in um, the coming weeks and months and years ahead. Sure, and um, and I do believe that there's a, there's reason for for optimism in the in the sector because um, if if we had had this discussion a decade ago, I, I wouldn't have been as positive. But but things have definitely changed across the shipping sector when it comes to to decarbonization and mm-hmm. and the work that is needed there. Um, the shipping sector is 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 very variable. I think um, you know in Danish we have a saying that says anything that that tastes like salt water is shipping. But frankly, there's a lot of different uh, different sectors inside shipping. Of course, they all have different approaches to to how they want to decarbonize, and it's not going to be the same for for what we call short sea shipping, which would be ferries and and smaller vessels, and deep sea shipping, which would be container vessels uh, like we own at Mask. So so there is a there is a big difference between how the sectors are tackling this. The sector itself is is substantial if you if you look at the amount of of emissions that it. Uh, that it that it actually represents worldwide. It's two to three percent of the world emissions that are, that are linked to maritime transport. That that's the same as Germany, more or less. So uh, there is definitely a need to to be active and and do something here as a whole sector. Mm-hmm. So where does where does Maersk in particular fit into this picture? Are there what are the plans to to decarbonize your fleet? What kind of timelines are we talking about? Is this still a you know 
um, R&D specific um, endeavor or, or are we really going to like a tipping point now where we're going to be seeing um, some real tangible progress? So Mask as a, as a, as a company, we're, we're one of the, the largest um, container ship owners uh, and, and logistics providers out there. So we, we own 740 ships, 343 port terminals, um, in 121 countries. So generally we say that there's a mask ship calling a port somewhere in the world every six minutes, 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, And that also means that that we have a a fairly large footprint, of course, when it comes to our emissions, which which currently stands at at 66 million uh, tons of CO2 equivalent. Um, so, so we are part of the problem, and uh, and and we are very well aware of that, and we need to to move forward, uh, and and we are also very well aware that that we have to do that as a matter of urgency. Um, I don't think anyone anymore is is questioning the impacts that we are seeing uh, every day um, from global warming. So we also know that that it's a matter of uh, of survival, not only for the globe, but but also for the company. There's a commercial viability here that's that's very important for our company. Um, when I speak to to new people we hire or, or to students um, from time to time, I normally compare this to to our Kodak moment. But then I realize that no one knows what I'm talking about anymore when I say that. So now I try to say it's a Netflix blockbuster <laughs> moment. Um, and and sometimes people do get that image around the fact that if we make the wrong choice right now, we're basically uh, might not be here anymore as a company. And that's why climate change has, has moved up steadily uh, over the past 10 years and to, to one of our top risks inside the company and is very much on the radar of, uh, of our executive leader team and our CEO. Um, how we tackled this was in, in 2018, we, uh, we, we laid our first strategy um, where, we, where we agreed that, uh, that we should be a net zero by 2050 uh, and that we should have our first green ship on the oceans by 2030. And honestly, we didn't really know how we were going to achieve that, but we felt that it was important for us as a as a large player to come out with 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 that, and we were then ready to to work to make that happen. Um, what then happened was three years later, our CEO came to this working group that we that we had working on this and and, and asked, uh, are we being ambitious enough? Because we had learned so much throughout throughout those past three years. And, and before we could answer, because we kind of realized then that it was a rhetorical question, um, he said, no, we're not. And we need to move our target to 2040. So zero to, in 2040 across all our sectors. So not only shipping, but but everything that we do, ports and and, and uh, logistics and services as well. And, uh, and we need a, a first vessel sailing on green fuels um, in 2023. So, so we decided to move that target seven years forward. Um, we also agreed that we would only order ships that can sail on green fuels from now on. So we decided no longer to to order the fossil fueled um, vessels anymore. So all our new ships from now on are, are going to be able to yeah. sail on, on green fuels. And we added some 2030 targets because in our discussions with a number of of um, academia and, and NGOs and other stakeholders, we understood that, that it was good to have a 2040 target, but but we really needed a 2030 target as well. And and there's a number of targets there. But the one that I'd like to highlight is that we want 25% of our of our cargo to be transported on green fuels. So that's also a, a pretty a pretty high figure, so to say. 
those are some you know really impressive targets. Like you say, you're only going to be ordering ships that can can run on greener fuels. Um, to what extent have those decisions been driven by um, regulators and government policies? Is that has that ever played a part in you know considering whether or not to go for ammonia fueled ships or hydrogen or electric or, or whatever MIST does decide to do in, in the coming years? What role has have policies played in that? So. This is really an interesting question because you know I, I've been a, a lobbyist for for twenty years now, and um, and it's not often that I've had the the task from uh, from from my company to actually be the one calling for more legislation. But that's that's where I am, uh, and that's where I've been for the past five years, um, mm-hmm. really asking for for more ambitious targets, for more legislation, for supporting um, first movers and what we're doing. Uh, we know we can't do this alone, so. Um, this, this, the regulation aspect of it were actually seen by by my colleagues and I very much as an enabler, um, but something that needed to come because they weren't there at the time we took this decision. The way that our strategy was built up was around four main pillars. Uh, the first one was new ships, and and we've ordered them now. You know, we've got 19 green methanol vessels coming in over the next three to four years. Um, New fuels, that's the really tricky part, is, is getting these new fuels for our ships, which we're, where, as I said, we're going for, for methanol, uh, green methanol. I could come back to that a, a, a little later if, if interesting for people to know more about. Uh, and then we had we needed our customers along this journey. We need, a, we need to make sure that, that, that our, our customers and our commercial partners would actually be ready to, to, to pay for this also, be ready to pay for, for, for green transport. Um, and the last leg of our uh, of our work and our strategy was the regulatory aspects which were really how do we make sure that there's a carbon price how do we make sure that the legislation that is adopted at eu level but also at un level actually enables this um and and does that relatively fast mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the eu i mean uh, listeners to this uh, podcast will have uh, heard last time about how the emissions trading seat scheme in the EU has been updated and part of that is that shipping will be included in the carbon market for the first time um is that inclusion um overdue in your in your uh, mind what challenges is is that going to pose as well to companies like yours is it going to be you know a big administrative burden or technical burden on you or is it going to make things easier even so I don't think it's overdue. Um, um, I think it's as you discussed with uh, with Anna uh, Gombau in a in a previous pod. Uh, the ETS has worked a lot by trial and error. Uh, I thought that was a very good way of putting it. Um, maritime transport we actually benefited from from the many discussions and, and the difficult um, task that that including aviation was mm-hmm. uh, and still is to a degree. So we actually started with having a, a solid data set with the monitoring, reporting, and verification regulation that was adopted a few years ago that actually gave a really solid data set to allow to calculate um, the emission trading systems allowances that were needed um, for shipping. So actually, we we believe it, it's it's timely. I mean, it's needed now, mm-hmm. um, but but I wouldn't say that it, that it was overdue. Um, the interesting element when we look at, at the Fit for 55 package a little bit broader is, uh, is this triangle of legislation that we've seen, which is which we are very supportive of, where you have the ETS, of course, which is pushing the right behavior, and then you have the fuel EU maritime, which is actually 
pushing the use of the right fuels in our mm-hmm. sector. And you have the Renewable Energy Directive, which is being reviewed as well, which is pushing the production of those fuels. It's very, very difficult to argue against uh, that solid legislative triangle. Um, so for us, for us, it makes a lot of sense. We were a little worried, uh, or the only thing that, that really concerned us with the emission trading system was that it doesn't take a well-to-wake approach, so a life cycle assessment approach to, to fuels. It only looks at what's coming out of the funnel mm-hmm. of the ship. Um, and of course, our fuels, are still methanol, for example, still has CO2 in it. Um, even though it's a green fuel. So you really need to look at how it's produced. If you take ammonia, for example, it doesn't have CO2 in it, but it can be produced with coal. So that doesn't make any sense at all. So we really wanted to have a a well-to-wake approach reflected Mm -hmm. for shipping, especially because it is such a global industry uh, and you cannot control how the fuels are produced outside of Europe, to be honest. And the other element that we wanted was that all all relevant greenhouse gases were included, uh, particularly methane and nitrous oxide. And and those are important for us because some of the fuels that we're looking at, uh, they do emit other greenhouse gases that may be worse for the environment than CO2. And we don't want to end up in a stranded asset situation. Um, and, and so we're pretty happy with, with where the trialogue has ended. Um, actually, both of these elements are reflected in the text, will be taken into consideration um, so, so for us, the EU has taken has taken the right approach, um, and and so so we're looking forward to seeing the final text, but but we have uh, pretty high hopes for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a European based company, but shipping is a um, global industry. Of course, you have the International Maritime Organization, the European Union. Um, there have been, uh, shall we call them, clashes between who is in charge of the sector or who should be regulating it in the past. Um, do you feel that that continues now and as a european-based company where do you where's your first port of call if you excuse the pun when you have issues and when you want to you know either influence policy or get clarity from policies um what does that conversation look like how, how do you go about um you know resolving those two i mean sometimes they they have different objectives or, or different ways of doing things it seems like a very difficult relationship to manage yeah, that, that's an excellent question, and it, it's really a difficult one too. Um, of course, we we were very worried that that having a regional measure would lead to less ambitions at IMO level, and 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 we were very worried that that the EU would simply, and EU member states would simply tap out of the discussion and and say, well, we're we're doing our stuff. Um, so, you know, why do we need a global measure anyway? Um, and then we would end up with with regional measures and and us having to sail between those different areas, trying to figure out uh, accounting and double counting and other things like that. So that that would really not have been very helpful. The more we have of these regional measures, the the easier, unfortunately, it is to 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 you know find a way to not respect them if if that's if that's what you're after. And and on the high seas, etc., it's always difficult to have strong enforcement. Um, I'm very happy to say that uh, I was in IMO in London in in, uh, in December. Uh, it was the first time that that we actually managed to meet physically um, mm-hmm. for the past three years. So it was uh, very good to be back there uh, in a room with no windows, but but still um, you know able to discuss. And and all EU member states were extremely active and 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 really pushing for higher ambitions and pushing for a market-based measure, etc. So those fears, in my opinion, at least, have been put to rest. Um, 
and we just need now the IMO to deliver something as well. The, the EU, even with a larger scope, as, as it is right now included in the ATS, will only address around 20% of, of shipping's emissions. So we really need something global to make sure that, uh, that we can compete with, with non-EU companies. And, and to the second part of your question around, uh, around our first port of call, um, it, it's, it's pretty interesting because when you, when you talk maritime transport, your, your stakeholders are, of course, very different than, than when you think of, of general uh, EU policies in other areas. Generally, you would say that, that, that in, in shipping, at European level, you, you have a few countries that are leading, and, and of course, Greece, Malta, uh, Cyprus, and Denmark are really the ones that, that are setting the tone. And they, they generally tend to have quite different approach to things mm-hmm. too, um, including on this topic. Um, so, so it's not your usual suspects where you, you generally, um, as a lobbyist in Brussels, would, would go to the very big member states. Here, you actually have to go to the very big flag states. Um, and, and Denmark is, is one of the, the biggest flag states in the world. So where we're, we have a lot of our ships uh, on the Danish flag, our new uh, methanol ships will all be on the, the 19 that we ordered. They will all be on the Danish flag. Mm-hmm. And the Danish Maritime Authority um, is is with us as a partner to to make this happen. Mm-hmm. So so my it's it's I mean I'm based in Copenhagen, so I guess my my port of call would would be would be a, a, a Danish flag, and and having them work both at EU and, mm-hmm. and IMO level. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. You've spoken a little bit already about sort of the innovation and the sort of developments that we can expect in the coming years, methanol, um, other propulsion technologies as well. Um, what kind of support can you describe that is available from from regulators to help investments in these kind of technologies, or are we just talking about a purely private capital driven endeavor, or is there funding available to you know you can go to um, a certain agency or, or body and say, look, we want to develop this technology to meet these targets. We want this amount of money. Um, what's that relationship like as well? Well, historically, historically, shipping hasn't been very good at this, you know, um, and, and Maersk certainly hasn't been very good at this either. It's not like we have a track record of, of, of getting EU funding or, or being able to apply very successfully for, for EU funding. Um, we've generally tended to, to think that, that we, could, we could handle this. Um, but the change here is so large that, that we can see that that, that approach is simply not um, possible anymore. So... There are a few things that make this more complicated. One thing is that shipping is not included in the Paris Agreement, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, and that, is, uh, that is making things relatively complicated because a member state, any member state that's part, party to the Paris Agreement will actually not benefit from decarbonizing shipping. So their NDCs would actually not have a positive effect if they were helping shipping decarbonize. Um, and and that, that makes things relatively more complicated to secure funding because, of course, member states are also keen on, on, on reaching their targets. Um, mm-hmm. Back to the emission trading system, it was agreed that um, 
that the, the, the money collected from shipping, which is substantial, is going to go into the innovation fund, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, there was talk about making a specific uh, shipping fund, etc., which honestly just wouldn't have made a lot of sense because because that's not what you want. What you want is, is clearly innovation. You, you don't want to uh, set money aside for a ship owner that's been sitting on his hands and for a new propeller mm-hmm. or, or something like that. You, you, we need a leap right now. So what we need is money in, that goes specifically to innovation, to these new fuels, to these new technologies, to uh, use of wind power again and things like that. that. That's what we really need to to look at. And I think the innovation fund is, is perfectly geared towards that. Um, the other elements that that are that are really interesting is the discussions we're seeing on taxonomy um, and green financing. Uh, we are uh, actually very supportive of that as well as Mask, and uh, and we can see that our investors and 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 lenders are also very keen on us delivering on our green transition. So so that's also mm-hmm. quite positive. The biggest challenge for us really isn't building the ships. And um, and I think my colleagues in, in naval architect colleagues are, are probably not going to like me for saying this, but but that's the <laughs> relatively simple part. Um, we we know how to do this. We we've been doing this for a while. Um, we we have the financial strength of investing in these ships. We when we renew our fleet, we're used to doing this, and now we'll renew them with with only ships that can sail on green fuel. So that part is is fine. What's really mm-hmm. difficult is is the opex. It is actually lowering the cost of green electricity because all the new fuels that we will have we have that in common, right? They have the same feedstock, which is green electricity. And mm-hmm. suddenly, shipping is fighting with other sectors over the same the same resource, and we've never done that before. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where really we need help. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess that really goes back to your point about the innovation fund, then that you you know the profits generated by shipping in the ETS and they're going to go into this fund that is applicable to you know, sector-wide. Um, if that makes a difference there, it it is much better for you. Um, I was just going to ask you about, you know, there's a lot of buzz at the moment about the United States and its Inflation Reduction Act and how, you know, this is going to offshore all of Europe's industries to the US so they can get all these green subsidies. Um Europe's replied with this, you know, this idea for this net zero industry act and, and more money and state aid and on all these packages of, of measures and things. Um, does shipping feature in, into that discussion at all, um, or, or is it as a sector? You know, it's not like semiconductors or solar panels or wind turbines. It, it is a separate beast. Um, what, what does shipping sort of future in that regard look like? Well, if we look at the IRA first, um, as mask we're, we're we really believe it's a game changer. We've been hugely supportive of it. We've, we think it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I understand that, that that there can be some worries, but but we can't at the same time point fingers at the US and saying they're not doing anything on climate change. And as soon as they then do something and move forward, you know, be offended over the fact that they're moving forward. I, I just, you know, th- th- that surprised me. The, the European reaction really surprised me, to be honest. And, and you know, it's a... Uh, it, it's always a question of of we, we have to grow the pie. Like we, it's not about fighting over over crumbs, right? It's, we grow the pie. It's it's fine if the EU does something similar. Of course, the US has the ability to do so in a certain manner that the EU doesn't have, just because it's not a federal state. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that can happen in in Europe. Um, and as shipping, again, most of our vessels are are built um, in Asia, in Korea, and China. Um, so it won't really have any effect on 
on the shipbuilding, but it will have a pretty big effect again on the production of the marine fuels that we need. Mm-hmm. And and the figures that we are seeing from the US in terms of how low they can produce green hydrogen, um, that's pretty impressive. I mean that that is that is making some of our assumptions uh, very uh, attractive for even from a commercial perspective to switch to methanol production in the US, right? Um, but we're a global company, so we need something happening in Europe as well on that front. Uh, and we need something happening elsewhere, you know, um, in, in Africa and Asia, and because we need these bunkering hubs around the world for, for this green fuel that needs to be available. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what worries me is more this protectionist knee-jerk reaction whereby, you know, oh, well, it can only be in the US, it can only be by American, then we have to make something that's only for Europe, etc. I, I don't think that's the right approach. I, I, I really don't. And I don't think we can win that as, as Europeans. I, yeah. I just don't think we're able to, to win that type of, uh, of battle. Uh, and and uh, sorry uh, to say, but we just can't afford to miss this one, right? No. Like I think we've missed a number of revolutions, um, technological and others. This one, we can't afford to miss it. So, so hopefully mm-hmm. the European uh, Net Zero Industry Act is actually it's actually taking a, a, a little bit more of, a, of an open approach to it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, how you need these bunkering hubs around the world um, to, you know, make global shipping actually possible in a green transition era. Um, what's your relationship with ports? Because I, I presume that they are the main people who are responsible for installing infrastructure for, you know, new, new fuel types and propulsion units. Um, and do you think there are enough policies in place to, to drive that kind of change. You know, we, we quite often see well-established centers in, in Rotterdam or Antwerp saying that they've installed um, dockside electrical charging or, or something like that. But is are we far away from a tipping point in terms of there being enough worldwide to even think about um, moving to that kind of technology? No, I mean we we have the benefit of owning terminals as well um, as a company, so so we do have a, a pretty close relationship and a, and a pretty good overview of what's happening in that sector as well. Um, mm-hmm. that, there's a lot of stuff that can happen in ports. I mean, that, there's there's a huge amount of of low hanging fruits, um, particularly when it comes to congestion, and um, and we do have situation whereby you know we 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 call it hurry up and wait, where you just sail very fast to to arrive to a port and then you have to wait outside the port for for hours if not days um and and that just that's just is not very efficient because of course if you could have sailed slower you we would have have used uh, less fuel and, and emitted less emissions and and it's not rocket science to you know give an indication of when a berth is ready and so of course when it's our own terminal set or we are able to to have a good uh, communication between ship and shore, but it's that's not always the case. And and some ports, of course, I understand why they rather have some ships waiting outside because as soon as a berth is ready, they, they, there's never a berth empty, of course, if you have someone waiting outside. But that's not the right way to do this. So, you know, there, there might be the technology is so today that it's not rocket science to actually address the the, the just-in-time arrival, as, it, as it's called. So that's one element to it that, mm-hmm. that I think is... Um, is quite important. The other element that you mentioned on on, on onshore, onshore power, it's actually part of the fuel EU maritime requirements for container vessels, um, and mm-hmm. and that makes a whole lot of sense too, because we have to remember that we are no longer comparing the use of um, traditional fossil fuel when at birth um, as to the price of electricity. 
So commercially speaking, we would be comparing the use of very expensive green fuels with the use of electricity. So even from a commercial perspective, it makes a lot of sense not to use that when you actually have an alternative, which is plugging your ship into uh, shore power. Of course, provided that that power is green, etc. I understand that. But from a commercial perspective, it makes sense. And then beyond that, ports are, as you know, quite often close to, to cities and CO2 is one element, but of course, there's a lot of, uh, of other emissions um, and particle that, that come out. So it, it just makes a lot of sense from a health perspective to, to, to plug in. So, you know, for us, that's a, that's a no-brainer that that's what needs, what needs to happen. Uh, and then, of course, does that mean that needs support for some of the ports to have this infrastructure? Maybe. Uh, and, and that'd be fine if, if that's the case, you know, uh, if some of the, the funding goes to that, that will benefit the whole sector. Um, absolutely, absolutely makes sense to, to, prioritize, to prioritize those elements. Regulating ports mm-hmm. is not easy. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, uh, uh, I, I never thought that uh, someone could throw a stone from, uh, from the other side of, uh, of the water in, in Strasbourg and hit the parliament. But, you know, when the dockers were there, they were able to do that. Um, so, so the EU does have this uh, history of, uh, let's say, pretty, pretty steep reactions to any regulation of ports. But what mm-hmm. it, it, it has to happen at some point also in terms of automation, uh, electrification and automation of ports. And then you go into discussions around around labor unions, etc. But and that's fine. You need to have those discussions. But but we also need to move forward in that sense. Um, so so ports are, are definitely tricky. But but there are also some low hanging fruits that we can start with relatively uh, swiftly. Mm-hmm. And there are policies in place or at least come in that, that can help harvest those those fruits as well. I guess. Um, I mean, this the shift towards greener shipping um, as it continues and gathers pace. Do you think that it will change how you know the the process or the service of shipping is actually carried out? Do you think there will be you know smaller boats, more boats, different routes? You, you already mentioned you know the, the technical aspects that can be improved in terms of you know planning when ships arrive or depart. Um, do you think if we fast forwarded forty years or something like that, you would see shipping be a very very different endeavor to what it is now? I think it would be very different. Um... I know it's very difficult to predict, of course, but you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, I think it will look different um, in terms of, of what we're sailing on and how we're sailing, etc. That that will have to happen. Otherwise, it, it it doesn't make any sense for this sector to, you know, the sector will just not survive if we just continue as usual. We're looking at at possibly, you know, an increase in from anything from fifty to two hundred and fifty percent in emissions. Um, from from now to 2050, we don't do anything. So of course, something has to happen. Um, when we look at our methanol vessels, the new ones that we're ordering, they're, they're what we're called 16,000 TUs, and that's a obviously quite barbaric uh, way of talking mm-hmm. in shipping. But basically, what that means is it's it's able to carry 8,000 of those <laughs> containers you see on trucks. So I think most people are familiar with with those containers, the 40-foot mm-hmm. containers that you see on trucks. So 8,000 containers on one ship. So they're still big ships. Um, uh, we have today some ships that are able to to carry uh, 24,000 TUs, so 12,000 of those of those 40-foot containers. Um, so they are obviously larger, mm-hmm. but but I, I don't see that as the problem technology-wise that the pathway there is relatively clear. Um, what may change rather interestingly is is the networks and how you operate your networks now you have a number of of regulations coming in 
which are regional by nature with DTS. And, and it may well be that, that you want to come closer to your final delivery point. And to, in order to do that, back to your point, then you actually have to, to start transshipping and using smaller vessels. Uh, so you do get them closer to, to the, the port that is as close as you, to your customer uh, as possible. What we're trying to do at Mask is, is, is integrate everything in being end-to-end providers. So we really we want to have the ability for our customers to say, I, I have a, a, a container you know, in this country and I want it to be delivered there and you can pick it up here and you have to deliver it uh, here, right? Um, so we also have quite a lot of inland uh, work to, to be carried out. But that's, um, that I think might be the, the changing. It's more on the network side than, than the, that there's no physical uh, problem in terms of, of trying to get these ships at the size that they are to operate on green fuels. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to maybe um, round off the the episode, you you mentioned about how you know your first um, greener vessel is is maybe going to be in the water this year. What kind of then milestones can you put, you know as Maersk also looking to sort of hit um, first? Is it going to be then testing this vessel on the commercial routes, or or is it going to be um, you know going for volume and, and showing the goods that it can deliver? What what are the things that you would want to um, be sort of publicize shall we say you know because a lot of these a lot of policies like this obviously only gain traction if um if people believe in them i guess so what would what would you want to sort of see in the coming uh, months and years from um your progress uh, that's, that's a, a really good question i mean we're starting with a smaller vessel um um that's coming this year at the end of this year um and it's a uh, it's it's it it can carry around two thousand five hundred of these uh, forty foot containers. That will sail uh, in the Baltics, and it will be fueled with uh, green methanol produced in Denmark, actually, um, from solar power mainly. Even even in Denmark, we have solar power. Um, so um, so that's going to be really a, a first test, so to say, uh, of of the technology. Um, is it reliable, etc.? But the good thing about methanol is it's not new. Um, of course, green methanol requires uh, a number of investments and, and, and electrolysis, et cetera, et cetera. But the technology itself is not new. The engine should be able to run without any problems. There is really no uh, major danger in uh, in methanol. It's actually much cleaner to sail on uh, than, than what we're sailing on today. Um, if you look at ammonia, that there's no engine today on that, that can that can use ammonia as a fuel. So, so I, I hear a lot about ammonia, and, and it's also part of our candidates, fuel candidates for the future. But today, there's no engine off the shelf, so mm-hmm. uh, um, so we can't build a ship right now. That's coming in a number of years, but ammonia is also relatively toxic, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. So if there's a spill or something like that, it's far more dangerous than methanol. So we need to learn from these different fuels. The good thing about ammonia is there's no CO2. Methanol still has some CO2. So we need biogenic CO2. Um, so what we really want as a, as a company is first to prove that methanol makes sense, of course. We'd like to have a number of fast followers so, so that we move away from, from this situation whereby the industry is going in all directions, that we kind of narrow it down to a few fuels and we work together to getting those bunkering hubs, as I mentioned, around the world ready. Um, and then we need to start discussing different types of CO2 that are needed for these type of fuels. And it's, it's going to be very strange to start talking about green CO2, so to say. Mm-hmm. But biogenic CO2 is, of course, the CO2 that we need to produce these fuels. And we need it in relatively large quantities. So it's not a big problem in Denmark uh, because we do have quite a lot of biomass and biogas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be other places where, where it's more difficult to, to get hold of. And then there could also be some member states that feel that the best option is to put that 
quote unquote green CO2 um, and use it for CCS and for for storage carbon capture and storage and mm-hmm. and and that's for us would be a grave mistake right please use the fossil co2 to to put it there to store it and and not the mm-hmm. the biogenic co2 which we need so so those are going to be super important for us and then personally uh for me we have in uh, in july um the imo uh, marine environment protection committee it's uh, it's one of the big ones and uh, and and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that they adopt an ambitious target um, so they need to have a, a zero in 2050 as a minimum, mm-hmm. um, but also that they start adopting a legislative package that makes sense, you know, with a with a market based measure and a fuel standard, and maybe something that mirrors what's happening at EU level. That'd be that'd be very nice. Mm-hmm. Simon, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's been really interesting talking to you about um, shipping and, and the overview you've given. Um, I was particularly interested in in what you said about you know building the ships isn't necessarily the problem. It's getting the fuel to work and, and to make sure that you have it where you need it. And, and also the, the societal challenges you, you mentioned about ports as well. I, it really shows how... Um, like every sector, it's not um, in a silo. It has to interact with, um, you know, clean power, road transport, aviation, everything in, in order to work. So um, I really thank you for um, answering the questions today, and um, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for picking shipping. It's not often that that people get to hear about this sector, so I highly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. So there we go. Shipping is slowly but surely heading towards a lower carbon destination, even if, to use the analogy of a massive cargo ship, uh, it is taking time and a lot of effort to make the turn and change course. Today's episode absolutely reinforces one of the many points that Foresight makes in our coverage of every aspect of climate and energy policies around the world, that all of these issues are interlinked. The energy transition is one big ecosystem. As Simon pointed out in the show, For shipping to go green, factors like renewable energy build-out and grid investments all have to be made. There are no easy solutions. At least there are no easy solutions that do not require effort and a bit of planning. Now, if you were listening carefully, today's quiz question should be no problem at all for you. I asked you, if shipping were a country, which other countries' emissions would it be most similar to? Russia, Brazil, Australia or Germany? The correct answer was Deutschland. Congrats to those who were listening or were able to figure it out anyway. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining me for our voyage into the world of the shipping sector. I'll be back soon for another episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out Foresight's other podcasts, including What Matters and our new show, Energy Enablers. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.